Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Service. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love to utilize the power of story to find out how people have developed their mindset for performance. We talk with CEOs, coaches, athletes, actors, really anybody who considers himself to be a performer to gain a better understanding and perspective on how these people see the world. The goal is to dig deep with each person and find out about their mindset. We'll learn about their successes, their failures. The goal is to uncover great pieces of information that hopefully can help you as you continue to create your own journey. We'll talk with people at the beginning of their journey, those in the heart of their career, and those who are able to reflect back on the career that they've had. We are all a compilation of the stories that we hear and the stories that we tell ourselves. So as you listen, it's important to think about how these themes relate to your journey as you go beyond the surface with yourself as well. Today we go beyond the surface with John Wallace. John is a former professional basketball player, and he will talk about his journey from everywhere, from Slovenia to Germany to playing in the D-League in the United States. John also had a very good college career where he played at Georgetown University. He graduated while being the all-time leader in three-point shooting percentage with a 43.4% mark and the most three-point field goals ever made at Georgetown University with 240. And obviously, Georgetown has had an illustrious college basketball program. John also helped lead Georgetown to a Final Four his junior year. And he, in the last year, coached on Georgetown's basketball team after retiring from professional basketball. So I really look forward to this conversation today. I think you'll find John to be someone who is intelligent, someone who has great clarity around what he wants to do, and someone who just embodies humility. So without further ado, I present to you, John Wallace. John, why don't you start, just talk about your upbringing. What was life like for you as a kid? I know we've met before, you've given me some insight, but for others who haven't met you and don't know your story, why don't you start with your childhood and we'll go from there. So, grew up in a small town called Harvest, Alabama, right outside of Huntsville. Um, grew up in a rural setting, uh, grew up on a farm. Um, father was a science teacher slash basketball coach. Mom did a hygienist, um, very family-oriented. Uh, got two young sisters. Uh, you know, I, I just grew up with a lot of responsibility. You know, we, we raised beef cattle. I learned that you got to care for something other than yourself, and that just taught me an accountability that I just kind of stuck with me throughout life. Um, when you say you raise beef cattle, so yeah. are you on a farm growing up mm-hmm. or paint that picture for us? A so more. like I, we lived on the property, uh, about an 80 acre farm. Uh, my, my house, my grandparents, one of my, my dad's sister uh, and his, one of his brothers actually live on the property. So, you know, we all got together and, and did most of the work together. But me being the only Wallace boy uh, and, my dad's sister, my aunt, she had two boys a lot older. They weren't really involved or interested in the farm as much, so I got the blunt of most of the work. <laughs> and so you had cows. What other animals? Uh, a couple horses, but cows were the main thing. Um, Did you ride? Did you ride horses? I learned how to ride now, not competitively or anything like that, but I just knew how to handle and be around the horse. Cause Man, I got this image of you with like a straw hat and some hay <laughs> in your mouth. That's what everybody thinks. <laughs> and then I meet people nowadays and they see me and see how I'm dressed and they're like, no chance that you grow up or live on a farm. Like that's you just amazing. don't look that tight. And so, so you're around animals and, and a lot of land. Did yeah. you play a lot with your cousins outside? What was what was life like? Uh, Sometimes, yeah. Uh, but as I got older, you know, I had to come home and help work, you know, so the playtime wasn't as 
you know, easy for me to take care of. Um, you know, we, we were either, whether it was cutting hay, putting up fences, working cows, there was always something to do. And then on top of sports, just that time management was something that was, you know, I was faced with very early. So you, you guys, your dad isn't a farmer, your mom's not a farmer, but the family has the farm. Is that right. sort of the idea? So my grandfather, uh, he bought the land back in, I want to say, early 60s. Wow. Uh, and so from there, you know, he, he worked on the plants. He worked for Campbell Soup in Chicago, came back to Alabama, moved the family back down during the course of everything that was happening in the world at that point. Um, and then he ended up working for Colonial Bread. Did his family grow up in Alabama? Yeah, so he's originally from Alabama. Okay. Went to the war, was moving, I think I got the story correct, they were going to California because my grandmother got sick when they, when they were younger, but actually found a doctor in Chicago, ended wow. up settling out there. Uh, so my dad, I think he grew up there to maybe he was about seven, and then by that time he had moved the family back. And he, he bought a piece of property, something to fall back on, um, and ever since then, we've just kind of turned into a business. Do you know what Grandpa did for a living? Uh, so, yeah, he was a carpenter by trade. Okay. But he worked on, for Campbell's Soup when he was in Chicago, throughout the morning, and would come back and just do carpentry work for different people around the community, and came to Alabama. Um, I think he, he injured his leg on the job, and so having that property to raise cows, they actually had hogs before I was born, and back then the hog market was really uh, plentiful, so... They did that, and that was just an extra source of income, something for him to fall back on, take care of the family. Then dad gets into teaching and coaching. Yeah. Uh, mom, a dental hygienist. Right. Um, what were mom and dad like growing up for you? Uh, they were good. I mean, very influential, very hands-on, a part of everything. I, I grew up with the situation of, you know, there was never a game or an activity that they missed. Um, I didn't ride the bus to school. Like it was, it was everything. They made sure they took care of me and my sisters, you know, and so whether it was parent-teacher conferences or whether he was my coach or, you know, at every practice, they let me know they were there. Um, and so it was, it was a nonstop teaching, nonstop learning, uh, no matter what it was. And did Dad play ball growing up? He did. He did. He played uh, played basketball and football, more so a football player. Played at uh, Alabama A&M University. Um, got a couple workouts with the Cowboys. Uh, and then ended up coming back home and teaching and coaching. And football for you? Did you play growing up? I did. So I played a lot of football. I mean, you're in Alabama. I right. mean, they got to get Football's you the pigskin. Exactly. Um, played up until my junior year of high school. I had a, got a concussion. But at that point, I think they were changing the coaching staff. And I kind of looked and said, look, I can learn a whole new playbook or build on what I've done with basketball this far and try to get a scholarship from that. And I chose the latter. And you – so – you grew up, you said dad was coaching sometimes. Did mm-hmm. he coach, like, your teams growing up? Yeah, he coached most of my teams growing up until I was, I think, about what, 12, 13 years old. And by that time, I was in high school. Um, so he that once I was in high school, he was now the assistant principal at my high school. So, you know. And I'm, I'm imagining, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, like, how big's your high school? If, if, you're, if you're sitting on 80 acres... Right. Uh, how big's the high school? Well, surprisingly, we had a lot of students. I think we had close to around 1,800 students, maybe. Wow. Uh, public school uh, is di- completely different than, you know, D.C., the the demographic and so forth. But, no, I mean, it was pretty big. But the town was relatively small. Got it. And uh, mom and dad were there for you. What about your sisters? What was the relationship like with same, them growing up? Same thing. They followed behind, behind me for every AAU tournament, every, you know, school event. They were there. Uh, and so, likewise, I had to return the favor when they had dance recitals. 
I had to be their front center. So I was going to ask, did they play sports or <laughs> nah. it sounds like they were dancers? No, nah, I, th- I think they saw what I had to go through. <laughs> they were like, no, nah, I'm okay. We're going to do our tap, jazz, ballet, modern. See I, see, I know all this stuff now from going to all the recitals. So I'm not just blowing smoke here. <laughs> and you said you said on the farm you were the only Wallace boy. So yeah. cousins are there are there girl cousins that were also so, on the farm? yeah. Most of my cousins are girls. Uh, the other two boys that uh, have a la- different last name. Uh, my dad's sister who married, and so but they just it wasn't an interest of theirs. Respectfully, you know, um, and so they went to college and went on off to do different things. I was much younger than than they were, but. You know. Why? Why was sports such an interest for you? Do you think? But it, it, it passed over maybe some of them, and and then also your sisters were able to say, "Ah, oh, this yeah. isn't for me." What What do you think brought it out in you? I don't know. I mean, I, I knew my dad was an athlete even at a young age. Um, it was something that I just I felt naturally gifted at. Um, it was always it was just an interest. What know? position in football did you play? So I was a quarterback. Got it. Yeah, quarterback. So wait, you're oh, you're a quarterback junior year. You get a concussion. Yeah. And you're like, I'm gonna hang it up. I'm imagining you're a pretty good quarterback. Yeah. So what that was pretty good. Was like, was well, I mean, football? I finished out the year. It was right. just after that, I looked at what I was faced with with the whole new staff coming in as a quarterback. You have to learn a whole new playbook. And who's to say, you know, it's not clicking? Do you? And I don't want to say, do I, do I waste my time? But do I deal with the struggle of a long season? And not take the time to prepare myself for basketball. And was everybody cool with that when you decided your senior year? Not initially, no. I would imagine in no. Alabama, high school football, you're the quarterback. Uh, what was the reaction from outsiders about you not playing? So, well, I know my basketball coaches have you. But, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean the parents of other kids that I grew up because I mean, so such a small town. You grew up with the same kids playing the same sports since we were like eight years old, and so a lot of people were kind of skeptical as to say, you know, well. He just quit football and was, let's see what he does in basketball. And you had a lot of naysayers and people who weren't happy with the decision. But at that point, I mean, it was about me. You know, I, I played the game honestly, respectfully. And so I wanted to see what I could get a scholarship with. And your junior year basketball-wise, are you being recruited or where do you stand from a basketball standpoint? So that's the next thing. I wasn't being highly recruited. Um, I think my junior year I took an unofficial to Kansas, which is probably the, the biggest school at that point. Um, schools like Murray State, uh, uh, Birmingham Southern, Belmont was another notable school that recruited me. Uh, Texas A&M, USC jumped in for a minute, but you know we our area for basketball wasn't that competitive, and I only played one year of AAU. You know, my dad didn't really believe in the whole AAU system, which I appreciate now. You know, from seeing it from the other angle, but uh, you know I, I didn't get that much exposure. So for that short time I was on the circuit, you know I gained a lot of. A lot of uh, speed that way. And before we go forward on basketball, can you paint the picture of what values or morals your parents passed down to you? Because you mentioned time management earlier and that you came home from school or from practice and now you're going to work. Uh, What were some of the values that you felt were passed down to you and maybe your sisters as well? Well, I know first of all, it's just hard work. You know, living on a farm, you do a different type of work. Hard labor that's not so glamorous. You know, you get hurt, even killed in situations. So, you know, I grew up being very serious um, and being accountable for a lot of things because you can't say I'm going to skip today and do it tomorrow because if you're raising animals and that's a form of income, if you don't feed them, in most cases, they're not going to eat, you know. And so on the back end, you're killing yourself. So uh, between that, time management, like I said before, like I had to, I remember growing up, I had to keep a notebook. My dad was called a homework notebook, and I had to jot, all right, you have whatever class, say geometry, 
these are the assignments that are due for the week that are upcoming or whatever. It had to be jotted down, noted for every single class. I had to count out my time as far as what I'm going to do after school, working out, food, whatever. And I just learned that when I was young. Hard work, discipline, and then the word that I it's coming to the top of my head is consistency. Very. Like, if I don't show up one day, they don't get fed. They don't get fed. We may not eat. Exactly. Uh, and that's such an interesting perspective. And I, I do wonder, just on a uh, from a high-level perspective, where our country is going when it comes to technology and when it comes to uh, automation. Yeah. And... You know, I've often thought about, like, I think the greatest athletes consider themselves to be blue-collar workers. Mm-hmm. And I know Kobe Bryant, for example, when he was interviewed and they asked Kobe, they said, what's the best compliment you can receive? He didn't say I'm a Hall of Famer. He didn't say I'm one of the greatest. He said that I'm a blue-collar worker. Yeah. And I do wonder, um, as we continue to automate things, where Americans will get their blue-collar-ness from. Mm-hmm. Because I think other countries don't realize that what has made this country so great is that we have an element of blue collaredness to us. Um, And I'm sure for you, that's something that has helped you not just uh, in basketball or in football, but also academically and, Mm -hmm. and now in coaching as well. Absolutely. So take me to uh, your senior year. You're now you're, you're playing ball. You're not playing football and uh, college decisions and and how that whole process uh, works out. So I wasn't too knowledgeable on all of that. You know, like I said, with only having one summer of AAU, not a lot of teams saw me. But in the area in which I came from, everyone knew that I was one of the elite players. But schools weren't banging down my door to sign me. And so, were you small? Uh, I mean, I was about the size I am now, as far as height wise. But I was maybe one seventy, very thin. Um, I wasn't the most athletic guy. I could still shoot it. Very smart player, but you know that was back when the LeBron James hype was around, the guys are flying and dunking. I just didn't possess that from my position. I think everybody wanted big guards. They did. They definitely did. It's interesting, like, when you think about it, like Chris Paul, and you see an Isaiah Thomas now, and you see these small guards. uh, And I think it'll be interesting how it works out for the next Mm -hmm. role, because I think with the way the rules are today, that you can get away with being a small guard because they can't touch it. Exactly. But, like, I remember when Chris Paul and Darren Williams were coming out, and I love Darren Williams because of his size. Yeah. And, you know, the knock on Chris was his size <laughs> the other way. So it is, it's interesting as a, as a sidebar as we get into basketball a little bit. Uh, so you're not really being heavily recruited. What do you end up doing? Why do you do it? Stuck it out. Uh, I was very uh, on top of my academics. And so I figured, you know, just take care of this, apply to schools and get into school that way. But then... Um, Coach Thompson, being at Princeton at that time, I fit the bill for the Ivy League athlete. And so uh, he came down and watched the game towards the end of my senior year. I uh, told my parents that he wanted me to come play for him, but the Ivies don't offer scholarships. And so that put another wrench in the whole thing. And so I was still kind of hoping for that bigger school to come along. And then we just stayed. What was your parents' reaction when they told you, when Coach Thompson's like, we want you to come to Princeton? I'm just, I'm just curious. Well, they were happy. See, my, my parents have never been the type to get really overzealous or super excited about things. We're always, you know, pretty even kill in excessive situation and make, the, you know, make a decision not based off of emotion. That's something that I've always been taught as well. And so, you know, we were just conscious of the pros and the cons of going to that school as opposed to 
holding out and trying to go to, say, an Alabama or an Auburn and try to walk on or do something like that. And you said you did well academically. Any yeah. idea, is that driven by mom and dad? Is that driven by yourself? What's going on there? A combination. I mean, you, you learn at a young age, it's instilled in you, and you take value of it, and it just stuck with me. Um, my sisters were exceptional students as well, so, you know, in our household, that definitely came first before anything. So you, you get home from school, you're doing your work? Yeah. Uh, on the farm, and then you're doing homework. And you mentioned the word serious, yeah. and that was the word that I was actually thinking about. Is like it was it was sort of a serious environment mm-hmm. in the sense of like, no, this is I'm not going to say life and death, but no, these are important responsibilities, Absolutely. and you're going to take them seriously. So yeah. seriousness is also a big big piece in there. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at Princeton, but you're also just weighing all your options. Yeah. Uh, so what ends up transpiring after that? So uh, I mean it. For me, being that age, like it, it was tough because obviously you want to have the signing day, you put on the cap, and get all the media attention. I didn't get any of that, and so we just stayed true, prayed a lot about it, and then coach got the job at Georgetown. He called back and said, "Hey, you know, I want you to be a walk-on. Want you to come to Georgetown and play for me." And again, that's something that it's not guaranteed. It's not the glamorous type of transition, but you know, you want to play at a high level. Georgetown obviously possessed the academic ability to get me to where I wanted to be. So it was a marriage at that point. But, uh, no, it's like started all over again. I had to come here and seriously just grind, work, and scrap to get to the position I am. So before you take me to Georgetown, there's like three things I want to unpack. First, you said we had to pray a lot. Was yeah. religion a Prayer. piece? Tell yeah. me about that briefly. Uh grew up in a church, uh, Southern Baptist Church. Um, my mom and dad are Sunday school teachers uh, still to this day. Uh, grandparents are very involved in the church on both sides, mom's parents and my dad as well. Um, and that was a, that was a big part. You know, we went to church every Sunday. I was in the youth choir growing up. Um, I did oratorical contests, uh, public speaking contests within the church, um, and so, you know, that that was a that was a cornerstone of our of our household of our family. Yeah, your family it just is is an interesting upbringing because I'm mm-hmm. hearing themes like we're serious, but we also compete. Like mm-hmm. your dad's a coach, um, but he's balanced also with you know the religious aspect, and then yeah. there's balance in the farming. Uh, idea. So you're, you've got even though you're in a rural town, mm-hmm. you've got these different elements uh, that I think are are teaching you all kinds of different things, uh, which is really interesting. And then so Georgetown versus Princeton, you know, both great academic schools, mm-hmm. but Georgetown basketball versus Princeton basketball are two different right. beasts. Exactly. Were you? So I know you guys. You said you guys were pretty emotionally in, you know, stable, stable. or even yeah. keel. There had to be. It's Georgetown. I mean, like, there was there excitement about that, or how did you react to that? Or no, you're still kind of excited. pissed off that you're not on full ride, or what, what is it? A combination of all that. So it was like I was definitely excited of the opportunity after I took uh, I took a visit, obviously an unofficial visit in what June. So no students were here. You know, it wasn't there weren't any signs that had hey welcome so and so. I didn't get to go to any parties. None of that happened. It was literally I. Saw them play pickup. You mean people aren't tweeting at you on social media? <laughs> no <back> chance. <laughs> no chance. But yeah, I mean, you were happy for for a second. Then you, when it kind of broken down, you were thinking, well, I still got to compete here. I still don't have a scholarship. And any thought about still going to Princeton? Because I believe their assistant coach was promoted to head mm-hmm. coach when when Coach Thompson left. Was there any thought about staying at Princeton, or when Coach said, "Hey, I want you to come to Georgetown with me," you're like. I'm gone. Yeah, it was. It wasn't a second thought at that at that at that point. 
just everything coach embodied the way he handled and talked to my family came to watch me play at in the middle of nowhere you know in terms of being on the basketball map so it was the relationship there that you had had built all right so you get on campus uh i mean (laughs) so (laughs) i'm laughing because there's so many elements to this that are I, i just the vision that i have in my head is interesting so first off you're coming from rural Alabama, mm-hmm. and for those that don't know, like, Georgetown is in D.C. I mean, in it's not It's not like, uh, I mean, it's kind of separate because it sits up on this beautiful hill, and it's gorgeous, and it's Georgetown, but it's, it's there's not a whole lot of farmland up there, and not a whole lot of green or grass or anything like that. So I'm wondering, A, what that transi- transition is like for you, B, you hit on the idea of, like, oh, there's not, like, oh, John's here, we're so happy to have him, like, okay. there's not that component. Um, and then C, uh, and you sort of hit on this, this notion of like, no, dude, you're a walk on and you're going to have to come and, and try to earn your way here. Right. Um, what is freshman year like as you transition to all of those? Uh, and also by the way, being far away from home. Um, so just tell me about freshman year. A little freshman bit. year was interesting. Um, I, you know, you get here and you see things like the Metro never saw that in my life. Getting in a cab. That was never an idea in my life at that point. And just, Seeing so many different types of people at a, at a university like that was uh, it was overwhelming, and I most of my teammates uh, will definitely say that I didn't talk for two years, and I, and that's how I am naturally. I I can sit in a room and I may not say anything, but I'm observing everything. Once I get more comfortable, I start to loosen up and speak like that in that way. But yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect. Do you consider yourself to be an introvert? Yes. So that's Very an much. easy answer for yeah. you. All right, so here comes this introverted, rural <laughs> Alabama guy, <Yeah. laughs> um, and so you get on campus, and there's you know Georgetown. There's kids that are coming from money. There's kids right. that are uh, went, from, you know prep school, yeah. private school. There's international. Exactly. So you got this diverse. And so freshman year, you just keep to yourself, put your head down, and, and go to work. Is that sort yeah, of the I idea? Mean, I, I knew I wasn't on full scholarship, so I had to keep a GPA. And that meant I had to be on top of everything, on top of playing against guys who were much bigger, stronger, faster, played at these prep schools, guys who were older than me already because, you know, upperclassmen had to compete against. Everything was just, you know, bearing down on you. But You also said something before where you said, I'm going to go to Georgetown, I'm going to get this education so I can mm-hmm. pursue what I want to pursue. Yeah. What, in your mind as a freshman, what is the dream for you at that point? I came in, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer one day. I said, let me come in. At first, I was going to do a government major. Uh, then it tailed off into being an English major, but the whole focus was get to law school, get to law school, get to law school. So in some senses, I'm going to use basketball to get into the best academic school mixed with basketball because you talked about Auburn, Alabama, these other options. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to use basketball to get a great education, ideally for free. Yeah. Um, but why law? What was the pull for, for law? Well, I... Initially, I wanted to be an agent. I wanted to be in entertainment. And just seeing, watching things on TV as you're young, I was like, you know, you want to still be a part of the game in some aspect. But at that point, I never thought I would be there as far as a professional player. And I was just going to ask, that was my next question. Any thoughts or dreams of playing professionally? You hoped and dream. But like on you your court at home, like shooting yeah. jumpers. Yeah. And it's just, you know, you, you become realistic with yourself. And it, not saying that I didn't possess the talent. It was just my mindset wasn't there. Yeah. Like I, I knew nothing about the the rules and how you get to be about that position, but, you know. So freshman year, you are a walk-on, yeah. a preferred walk-on, we'll call right. it, give right. you that. 
uh, and you're in the gym battling. I'm assuming you get up here in the summer, or mm-hmm. you're up here in the summer, and you're, you're battling against some pretty talented dudes. Absolutely. Uh, walk me through that process, and then uh, take me to the season. Take me to freshman year. It's hard when you're 170 pounds, six feet tall. It's hard to battle against these bigger guards and bigger guys. So you know, I had to. I, I got frustrated. I mean, that's the natural course of things at, at that level. Um, but the competitiveness in me. The, the drive that I've been still with, it, it wouldn't allow me to just take a back seat and say, okay, I'm going to walk on. I'm supposed to be behind these guys, and I never thought like that. So I just do, you know, if I keep plucking away at it, eventually I would get the confidence, get the hang of it, and be able to play. And little did I know, you know, I was able to start every game for four years. So time out. <laughs> and this is where I want you to be honest with me. So preferred walk-on at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. Starting four years at a point guard position, right? Has that happened? Is that like in my mind? I, like I'm trying to think of the great walk-ons of all time, and mm-hmm. like I think of Dante Calabria at North Carolina. I'm trying. You probably have a better sense of like the great walk-ons. Oh, I have no idea. I, I would always think about it, but I never went back and researched. Yeah, four-year starter walk-on yeah. uh, at a let's just say a big basketball school. Um, so when you were you shocked when you realized, like, oh, I'm going to start here? Or was that just you were expecting it? What's crazy is that it was a combination. I knew I put forth work, and I knew, you know, I handled my business in practice. So I expected it, but I was still kind of shocked because that's when it set in. It was like, yo, I'm a starting point guard at Georgetown, like where Allen Iverson went, like the Georgetown I used to see on TV. You know, because, again, going back, we so we didn't grow up with cable in the house or Internet. So I used to go to my aunt's house, who was literally, you know, about 100 yards away. Uh, my dad would buy packs of VHS tapes, and I would go big Monday nights and on day, on Saturdays, and I'd just go hit record and just record every college game that would come on. And I would come back and get those tapes from my aunt's house and just watch them throughout the week. And that's how I knew what these schools were because on our – I mean, we had, what, six channels? I think Jefferson, Jefferson Pilot Sports back at that time, they would only show – the Alabama Wednesday night game or the Auburn Wednesday night game. And that's all I ever knew. And so to be here and, and being around like all that rich tradition and history, that's when it all hit home for me. Were there any players that you would watch on those VHSs that mm-hmm. helped you shape your game or that you looked up to? Or? Mike, Mike Bibby. Mike, Mike Bibby. Bibby was one of my favorite players watching wow. because he was a he didn't do a lot. Well, I'll take it back. He wasn't flashy, but he was effective, solid, and he won. You know, my big thing is let's win. And so that's who I pattern a lot of my game after. Have you met him? I have not met Mike. And you know, his son's now playing at, I think, South Florida. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he looks like him. And his son used to be a ball boy uh, for the Atlanta Hawks when, when, Mike was, yeah. when Mike was there. And so he used to be up, you know, getting up shots and pregame. And his son were like, look at this little guy. Now he's right. a freshman at South Florida and playing some ball. Um, that's, that's wild. So, all right. So... Do you remember the, like where you were? What the uh, was there any sort of did coach call you into the office and say, "Hey, John, we want you to start for us," or is it just like, "All right, here's our starting lineup and we're rolling with it"? I think it was the day before we played. I think it was LaSalle was our preseason one of our preseason scrimmages, and he had me out there with the first group, and I'm thinking, okay, I I might give get us that started. first group. Tell just so uh, I think it was uh, myself, Ashanti Cook. Uh, Brandon Bowman, Jeff Green, Roy Hibbert. I believe that was the starting lineup that that uh, at that point in the season. And then we big lineup with, big with lineup. you, right? 
And so we're driving down to Philly to play against LaSalle, and he writes the star lineup on the board. I'm sitting there putting on my, my shoes. And at that point, I'm like, okay, I'll start. But it's And I'm trying to keep myself on. Oh, it's just a scrimmage. You know, I got to still come out here and produce. And I think I played okay that game, but I still didn't have a grip on Am I going to be starting for the opening day game? And Was humility something that you yeah. – that you like you're like for those they can't see you so we're on audio yeah. for those that don't know you just lit up like probably more than anything that word for you mm-hmm. carries a lot of weight Absolutely. what does that word mean to you it means so much because you you see how quickly you can lose something you know you, you put in all this effort and i think even to that aspect that that sense of humility allows you to work hard because you're not your ego isn't driven to the point where you say well i I shouldn't be doing this with this guy because he doesn't play the amount of minutes I do. Or I don't think he's as good as I am. I shouldn't be working with him after practice. I think to be humble allows you to, I guess, roll up your sleeves and do a little bit of the dirty stuff. Were you the guy that was getting extra reps in? Yeah. You were, and and were, like, there's, some, there's some talented dudes on that team. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that taken? You've got that. Like, I'm just painting the picture and the vision in my head of, like, serious – Southern uh, walk-on, mm-hmm. like, did the other guys look at you and, like, tell you, like, dude, relax, and, like, no, or, or they was, respected it? That was a beautiful thing about my class in general with uh, myself, Jeff Green, Roy Hibbert. Uh, at that point, it was a guy named Cornelio Gubanda and Tyler Crawford. We came in. None of those guys were that hyped coming right, out of high exactly. school. Right, exactly. None of us were hyped, and we were all from kind of different walks of life, but some reason we just we love to compete and I think it was our second day on campus in in the summertime and they left the gym open and we were in there shooting it like from midnight to around 1 30 in the morning and then we were just kind of looking each other size each other up thinking that you know I'm with four other guys who really enjoy playing basketball they enjoy winning and so I think that just kind of kept us together and formed a bond that you know we're all great friends to this day but those guys had the same interest in mind. So they respected we the fact that you yeah. would be in there getting that extra work. Right. And and they were right there with me. And that that was the thing. Like and it was vice versa. We didn't we held each other accountable. And I think that's one of the reasons that we were so good during those years. We guys held each other accountable. You, we weren't letting each other, you know, take a play off or skip a workout. We didn't do any of that. Very cool. So I know the humility's there and yeah. Uh, just to use another example, we mentioned Isaiah Thomas, the the new Isaiah, Isaiah Thomas. Right. We have to preface it because when I was growing up, the guy I was watching on VHS tapes was the the Isaiah, Isaiah Thomas, <laughs> right. who like I'll never forget. I was at a basketball camp and they showed the tape of him after he sprained his ankle in the fourth quarter and he dropped mm-hmm. like twenty some points. I think it was the NBA Finals or playoffs. He's hopping around. And he's hopping around yeah. like that guy. That's what I love. Right. Like that's me. I want to be that. Exactly. Unfortunately, I didn't have his handle, his quickness, his shot, or anything else. <laughs> but uh, back to the new Isaiah. Thomas, mm-hmm. uh, I read in an article where he said, in one, it was like one sentence where he said, my mantra is stay paranoid. Um, so on the last pick of the NBA draft, like I have to be, in my mind, I hear that. It's like, all right, I have to be humble. Like I, I got it. You know, I, they can, they can cut me at any time. Uh, he's been traded a few times in the NBA. So he said, I've had this mantra of stay paranoid, but in the same sentence, John, he would say, but I believe I'm the greatest basketball player in the mm-hmm. world. And can you – so I'd imagine, like, yes, you had the humility and you can light up. But when they said, all right, now we're not scrimmaging LaSalle, now we're, we're playing against Syracuse or whoever it might be, yeah. what's your mindset when you strap up and, and, and are going against Syracuse? Now you're the starting point guard on Georgetown. That, it's so 
before I was getting that, it's so interesting that he said stay stay paranoid because that's something my friends always say to me. He said, dude, you act like you're paranoid all the time. That's so odd. But yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's a quiet confidence that you have to have. Um, the, the paranoid aspect, exactly what Isaiah said. You just you have to be prepared for anything. Always, my dad always says, always expect the unexpected, and that's how I literally live my life. But at the same time, you know who you are. You know you put in the work. You've prepared and done so and so. You just go at that point. You got to go there and compete. And when you step on that floor for a game, mm-hmm. can you walk me through your mindset? Like, you, you know, you're you're going against some of the best guards in the country. Like, give us a rundown of some of the guys you played against when you're in Big East basketball. I mean, it's it's probably a who's who of guards. I'd imagine. Yeah. I remember like Pitt had great guards. Syracuse yeah. had great guards. But anyway, give us give us an idea when you're going against player X. What your mentality is, your mindset is going against that guy. So third game my freshman year, we played Illinois here when Darren Williams was playing, and this is when he was the bigger Darren Williams, and I knew about him. And coach was like, okay, this is your matchup. They put you on him instead of D Brown. Right. Well, D Brown was a lot quicker than I was. <laughs> we had an older guard who could actually keep up with him. I didn't possess that foot speed. <laughs> I'll take the bigger right. guy, not the not the super. Like, super I'll just speedy I'll guy. just try to square up and do my best. And I remember that game. I started off the game really hot, scored like the first six points of the game, and I'm okay. I belong here. At that point, I knew I can play with these guys. And he quickly reminded me of why he is an AP All-American. But, you know, from that split second, that confidence in me kind of grew. But when you're going up against a guy like that, you you, you say, I belong here. Like, yeah. I, like let's go. Right. Um, and, and I think that's one of the big things I talk about on this podcast all the time and people that listen are aware of it is, like, mindset for preparation is different than mindset for performance. Mm-hmm. So yeah. mindset for preparation, we want to be paranoid. We want to be humble. We want to be neurotic in a way. Right. But when we step on the floor, we want to have a little bit of narcissism in us. You Absolutely. said quiet confidence. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, flexing your muscles, but it mm-hmm. has to be an utter belief that – you, Darren Williams, who has three, four inches on me and right. however many pounds on me, uh, no, I can I can check you. Absolutely. And I bet if they put you on D Brown, you were probably like, I'm going to check you. Right. I'll just watch your belly button and make sure that you're not getting by me. There you go. So um, I love that dynamic. I think it's so valuable for people to hear because I think a lot of people just think, oh, just stay humble all the time. I'm like, well, dude, if you're humble and you're going against Darren Williams, he's going to eat you. Exactly. He's just going to eat you. Yeah. Um, and I bet there's guys who would say the same thing about you. If they were humble when they went up against you, you mm-hmm. probably you saw it, and it's like, all right, I got you now. Like, I'm going to take it. So freshman year, you're starting. Uh, talk about how that team does and, and what you, what it's like for you to be starting for that team and as you're sort of getting used to college life as well. It was rough. Uh, we had we had an up-and-down year. We started, to, uh, we started to play well, I think, right after Christmas. But back then, I mean, that was the old Big East. And I think that year we had Rudy Gay was with Connecticut. Syracuse had everyone off the, coming back off that uh, national championship team except for Carmelo, Pitt, you know, on down the line. Notre Dame, we, we, every night it was like we were playing at least three pros uh, on, a, on any given team. So you never had a night off, and you hit that wall, especially as a freshman. I hit that wall. Because you guys are starting now. How many freshmen, that, that team? Three. We three. were starting three that year. Um, and then, yeah, I think around January – I, we looked around the locker room and was like, yo, this is a lot harder than what we expected. And these guys are really good. You know, and you, you add on the travel, getting used to college life. And the curriculum is so different. I mean, yeah, I had a good public school. You know, you, you, you can go through high school, and I made one B really in like four years. So you're thinking, man, this is going to be a breeze. I'm smarter than everybody else. And then you come to Georgetown, and that curriculum changes. You learn about things you've never even heard before because it's not on the same level as some of the prep schools because they have the ability to teach certain things that you, you're not able to. 
And, you know, you get to school and you have to learn how to teach yourself all over again. And you pair that with playing on TV every night, it's rough. Family's still very supportive. Like you, mm-hmm. you mentioned it growing up. Like my sisters were coming to eight, to basketball games. Yeah. Uh, my parents were always there. Uh, were they a big part of your support system that freshman year when mm-hmm. you're going through that? They were. Uh, so to this day, I usually call home, if not every night, close to it. Uh, even, uh, and they they came to I want to say two games that year because my dad was still a principal, my sisters were still in school, so they couldn't just drop and just come to every game. But he, he always was telling me, you know, every year I'm going to get further and further in the stands. So you have to learn how to prepare yourself, A, both mentally and physically, and you have to establish a relationship with your coach and your teammates to the point where that you can lean on these guys because that's who you have in that family atmosphere. Now, that's your family. You know, my, my, like exactly like what you said earlier, my parents were still very supportive, grandparents and so on. Um, but, you know, I would always call home and kind of bounce ideas off of them, just kind of let them know what's going on. And you, they keep me humble. And always keep me paranoid to a degree, right. you know. And when you say I have to prepare mentally and physically, can you give us any thought into how you prepared mentally? What were some of the things that you would do in college and that you learned? And heck, if you even want to go into the professional career that you had, were, yeah. was there anything you learned along the way from a mentality standpoint that you needed to perform at your best? It was a, it was a focus that I, I learned. I, I think I had it in high school, but I really perfected it in college. Um, being able to just block out a lot of stuff, even to the point of not reading blogs not reading newspapers because I messed up about that my freshman year and read the little Hoya blogs and whatever, and if they could tell it, I was the worst point guard that we ever had, you know. And so mentally there, it's just blocking out. And my dad always said you have to be like a horse with blinders on that carry buggies. They don't see left or right. They just see forward, and that's the only direction I need to go. Um, as far as watching film, knowing your opponent, when you go to sleep, playing a game over in your head over and over again so that when you get to these situations on the court, you can think one or two steps ahead of your point of your opponent, knowing time and situation. That was those are things I knew that I could be better at than anyone else. If I didn't have the ability to jump forty inches in the air, let me know how to get to this angle to box him out before he can use his athleticism, which makes me more effective for my team. And those are things I I tried to perfect, and then eventually once my you know uh, athletic ability caught up to my body and I were able to mature more. It made me to more of a well-rounded player. I love the horse and buggy analogy, and yeah. I even think of like the car. When you're driving a car and you've got the rear of your mirror, it says objects in the mirror may appear bigger than yeah. they seem. And like if you take that analogy and you think about it, it's like if you were looking in that rear view mirror, that stuff might seem bigger than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that noise, that volume might be turned up more than it really is. Like a blogger says you're the worst point guard. Like that might seem bigger than it actually is. Um, so I love that analogy. It's like, let's just keep the, keep looking forward. Uh, I use a phrase with my clients all the time, like be where your feet are. Like, let's just yeah. be where our feet are. Let's keep moving forward. If you're on a horse, like you need to be on that horse. Uh, and since you've been around horses your whole life, that's probably <laughs> a good analogy, right? Like if that horse thinks that you're somewhere else, that horse is going to flop you off and, and you're going to go flying. But if that horse knows you're connected to it and you can feel it and you could ride with it and be uh, one with the horse, uh, maybe we're going too many analogies at once here, but um, you can just keep moving forward. Yep. So I think that's a, that's a great thought. So moving the ball forward, uh, what's the rest of your time at Torchdown like? Give us a, a summary of it. So freshman year, it's crash course. Everything from being – from social life to basketball to academics was, was tough. You know, um, sophomore year, that confidence started to grow. Junior year, you know, final four year happened, and that's when I realized, okay, this is this is like being, this is a real college athlete experience now. Um, 
you know, the city was behind us. The camp, the students were, were behind us. We had fans on the road. You know, the, the famous Georgetown people were now following us and all that kind of stuff. So it made you feel good and made you see how big a deal Georgetown was. You start seeing the old fans come back out and they would interact with you and tell you how proud they were and this, that, and the other. So that sense of pride now kicked in. So on top of the humility, the paranoia, you know, taking care of business, owning off the court, that pride to where you really felt like an intricate part of Georgetown, you know, helped you to compete on another level because it meant more. I'm going to ask you a, a kind of different question, but look, I'm a white kid who grew up in the D.C. suburbs mm-hmm. and in Maryland. So when Jerome Williams, Iverson, Victor Page, yeah. uh, Don Reed, Othella Harrington, like I know those guys from growing up in this area uh, as Georgetown guys actually – this is very strange, but Jerome Williams is actually my favorite player. I don't, really? I don't know why. I'm strange like that. I always like these junkyard dog type guys, and yep. that was his nickname. I actually wrote him when I was like in middle school, and he <laughs> signed a picture and, and sent it back. And it was in my room with Jerome Williams when he was on the Pistons. Story for another day. But what I was going to ask you was, growing up in suburban Maryland, uh, where the Terps really started to rise, and people in our area really started to cheer on the Terps, um, I'm curious from your perspective as, a, as an African-American playing for a school like Georgetown, mm. which, look, John Thompson, to me, like when I run into African-Americans, Georgetown has a place in their heart because John Thompson was really the first successful black coach in sports. I mean, people don't realize because now we have – you know, the Tony Dungy's of the world or the Shaka Smart's of the world or the Doc Rivers of the world. Mm-hmm. But John Thompson was, a, you know, larger-than-life figure. He was outspoken. He right. was um, intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think maybe even our generation doesn't realize, because there's a little before us, realize, like, how big of a impact he had on basketball, but especially, I think, amongst African-Americans. For your guys' Final Four run, did you feel any pride in that, the, the racial component? Yeah. Uh, because I'm just looking at it as an outsider and thinking, like, that must have been, like, something special. Can you speak on that at all? No, definitely. And, and it's funny because of our offense. A lot of people stigmatize that offense with being with slow white kids who don't possess the athletic ability that makes them, you know. Because JT3 is coming from Princeton. Exactly. And, you know. I'll take it even a step further. I've always, you always hear guys when they make it, they say, you know, thank, thank you, mom, so and so. Not downplaying what my mom did at, at any level, but I was very blessed and fortunate to have a lot of strong black, not only just a strong black father, but father figures through his brothers, my grandfather, and then to go play for a black coach at a school like this really meant a lot to me, um, and just the, the development because he, you know, it's it's he's seeing life how. I am living it, you know, and so that being able to teach me certain things beyond basketball, but even at the basketball level, there was a there was another level of pride because I think at that point was it Tubby Smith had been like the only black coach to come in and then win a championship within his first couple of years. It was his first year, I believe. We almost were able to do that with Coach Thompson, you know, and he always had our back. You know, he he definitely taught us the game, taught us a lot about life, and just that sense of pride as being a, you know a black man at a predominantly white institution. It's still tied together, that overall cohesiveness, but you knew at the same time you were playing for something else. Like the way I would, I, I would think about it is like, 
look, you've got a cake, and the cake is your community at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. Like, we're proud to be Hoyas. But then there's this little bit of icing on the cake that makes that cake a Absolutely. little bit more special. Yeah. And I would imagine that is your identity. That is like, yeah, I represent something bigger than me. Maybe there's a young uh, black kid watching us and, and sees people like him. And, and there's that to me is like bigger than basketball type stuff. And yeah, I, I would definitely. imagine there's such a sense of, of the word I go to. Look, I think pride uh, like we can use the word pride in a negative way where mm. that person's too proud Super, to change. Yeah. But I think like the way I define pride, like confidence is believing in myself. Cockiness is believing I'm better than others. Mm. And pride is believing I'm part of something bigger than myself. And so that word I think is just such a valuable word. And when a team has pride, mm-hmm. like we're watching, you know, South Carolina with Frank Martin have pride west virginia with coach huggins have pride xavier uh we watch a lot of these programs that have just this uber pride and that doesn't mean that the arizonas the dukes you know these other schools don't also have pride i'm not saying they don't but when you see that come out i saw with rhode island uh when rhode island was battling with oregon like there was just a pride like in what they were doing and how they were doing it so when you have that as a team and when it can transcend basketball uh i i man i I live for those feelings i think that i think we should all run toward pride uh in that sense because when we're part of something bigger than ourselves i'm not sure there's anything really better than that in life i really i i think it 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 aligns with the idea of giving to others it aligns Mm -hmm. with a religion right people Mm -hmm. are are align themselves with a religion because it's part of something bigger than themselves, a community like Georgetown, or I'm proud to be a Washingtonian. Like it's something that I care about. Um, other than when I went to Syracuse and Syracuse would play Georgetown and <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, we can, we yeah, can get that into that later. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think pride is, is really valuable. So you walk me through what you're thinking when you're at the final four, where is it? What's your mentality? What's your mindset? You're now there with that class that you came in with. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about being at Georgetown and being in a Final Four. That was amazing because it was in Atlanta that year. And so Atlanta being right down the road from where I'm from, I mean, I had literally my whole town, then the city that I used to play against growing up, everyone was at the Georgia Dome there to see that game. So for me, that was that was huge. Uh, and on top of that, playing against Ohio State, and that year they had, I mean, all first-round draft picks on that team. That's the Conley, Odin. Right. Yeah, Conley, Odin, Daquan Cook, whole nine. So... You know that only added to the to the fire right there. So you didn't have a slow point guard that you're going Not up against. At all. Didn't get a chance. To <laughs> Can you take us there? Can you take us like you're playing against this, you know, thirty year old, eighteen year old, and Greg Oden, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which once again we don't remember like how freaking dominant that guy yeah. was. Uh, and then we have his sidekick, which is so interesting looking back because everyone's like, oh, it's Mike Conley, like Greg Oden's best friend, and his yeah. dad coached Greg Oden, so Mike's just along for the ride. Yeah. But he's just at yeah. another level, you know, I think his dad was a track star, mm-hmm. like speed. Um, so can you take us there? Like what are you thinking when you're going against a guy like Conley and then you step into the lane and, and you've, got a, you've got a non-human big, and not to say Roy Hibbert is, is, a, is a small guy by any, yeah. you know, by any standard, but at the time, Greg Oden was the next LeBron James uh, in a lot of people's minds in a different position. Take me, take me to that Final Four and, and what your mindset is. Are you nervous? Are you excited? Are you, you know, you're not playing in a dome like it's, it's, uh, it's the Final Four, right? And I was at that point. I can honestly say I was not overwhelmed. I was, I was hyped, 
but still a little pissed at the same time because just the game before I hit probably one of the biggest shots I've ever hit in my life against Carolina. And I'm thinking, okay, finally these commentators, these guys will give me some respect. Not at all. We go down to Atlanta, and all they're talking about is that whole freshman class. And then they build up the duo between uh, Greg and Roy. Forgot about Jeff, myself, Jesse Sapp, the other guys. It was all about Greg and Roy, the two seven-footers going head-to-head, marquee matchup. And so, you know, that gave me another sense. It was like, okay, I have to come out here and compete all over again, do this all over again. But, you know, Mike was one of those guys where he didn't make mistakes. And I, I felt like I met my match with a, a savvy guard who, you know, could meet me here as far as mentally and he outsmart the game. So I really had to be methodical in how I played uh, against him. But, you know, he was good. He had a good team. They, we unfortunately got in foul trouble early, and that kind of cost us the opportunity to win the game. But, you know, like you said, Greg was just – he was a problem. So you just gave us insight into something that you hadn't before. And you talked about staying paranoid, but you just gave us insight into the underdog or the chip on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. So you're hearing commentators say, like, you know, this is all about Greg and Roy and whichever big man, you know, can win. And you're looking at this and you're like, no, nah, man, like, we can do, we can do right. some things too. Not right. just you, but also Jesse and Jeff and, you know, all, all the other players. When you hear criticism or you hear people saying you're not good enough or um how do you interpret that and and how, what do you do i don't hear it i mean you you hear it but you you block it out um, but at the same time i mean like michael jordan said in his hall of fame speech that, that gives you a, a fire that gives you some fuel um when you're in there working out by yourself at 10 at night that's what you're hearing that now is when i started hearing your, your critique um because i was the underdog from the day i set foot on campus um you know, and coach will admit to you. He's, I think he went out and said it in a press conference one day that I thought he would never play a second year at Georgetown. And he's like, I'm screwed, man. I got this Princeton point right. guard playing at Georgetown, <laughs> started as a freshman. <laughs> and so, I mean, we, we, we work. I work. My teammates help me work. And it's just, you know, at that point, again, that quiet confidence just has to, has to overtake everything else. Yeah, you're the underdog, but you know you're better than these guys that you're playing against. And so, I'm not proving it to the world. I'm proving it to myself. And I feel like that's the accountability that overrides everything else because you're not going to shortcut yourself now because you have to look in the mirror that next morning and say, did I come out and perform at the highest level that I possibly can? Not based on someone else's success or their skill type, based on what I do. You know, you can't be worried about the next man. So you mentioned Jordan, and I've talked to people that have been around Jordan, and one of the things that I've heard is like, any criticism that he got, he would just consider it to be a log, mm-hmm. and he would just put that log into his fire. So he has a fire like Absolutely. that. Like you said, that's between him and him. Like yeah. that's he's holding himself to that accountability. But every little thing, whether it's Dean Smith telling him he can't defend, whether it's people saying he can't shoot, whether it's his high school coach cutting him, he's like each of those are going to be a log, and I'm going to put that log into my fire. And it's interesting because you're going back and forth. You're saying I blocked everything out and I was able to focus. But then you said to me going into the Final Four. I heard them talking about Greg and Roy, and I'm like, "F this! Like, I can, I can bring something." So I think what I'm, how I'm interpreting that, and if I'm interpreting it the wrong way, let me know. You heard it, but your way of blocking out is be like, "All right, I'm gonna put that into my fire, mm-hmm. and then I'm gonna go play ball like I know how to play ball." Uh, would that be accurate? Is like, no, I, I hear this, like, and, and especially it's important, I think, for today's anyone, today's human, because we can't hide. There's too much. It's on our phone. Like you, you, For an athlete to just block out 
everything that's being said, it, it's impossible. Someone's going to text you. Someone's going to email you. Someone's going to tweet you. Someone's going to Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it's going to be. So like the idea I think is like, no, I'm going to hear it, but then I'm going to put it on my fire. But then I understand that my fire is going to burn uh, regardless of what someone else says. And just to close it all up and close the loop in regard to Jordan, a lot of people didn't understand his Hall of Fame speech. Because yeah. it was, was arrogant. It was arrogant. It was spiteful. It yeah. was, you know, thanking all these people that wronged him. Um, and I think what a lot of people don't understand is like, no, that's just his logs to the fire. Mm. Um, and so what might seem spiteful to me is actually what he would use uh, every year to just keep that fire burning. Uh, but would that be an accurate estimation is like, I understood, like, I would hear it, and then I would say, all right, I'm going to put it in my fire, and then I'm going to spit out and just play ball. Yeah, that is. And and it was it was almost like a maturation process because when I mentioned back to my freshman year when I was going to the blogs, you want everyone wants to feel wanted. And so at that point, I went searching for some self-gratification. And that's where I had to say, okay, this is what you don't do. But as we got better, like they say, it's levels to it. The media started coming around more. The TV shows started covering us more. And then it's like, okay, I'm just turning on to watch who else is playing that day. And then they cut to the side. Here's Georgetown University. They got great big men but terrible guards. And that was a knock on us that final four year. And so myself and our mother teammate, Jesse Sapp, that's what we had that. that Beautiful. So the idea is I'm not going to go searching for this right. stuff. But when it comes to me, I'm ready and I know how to handle yeah. it. You know, I, I've taken Facebook off my phone as the app because I'm just like, this is a waste of my time. Mm -hmm. And so I took it off. Now it's still on my computer and, yeah. you know, I can check it. And I like being connected to people and Facebook's got some good qualities. But I think it is important that we set up a system for us to be successful. And whatever that system looks like mm -hmm. uh, gives us the best opportunity for us to be successful. So I've had athletes, you know, take Twitter off. Uh, they're just like, they're off. And, you know... For me, I love Twitter. I think Twitter is an amazing um, resource. Uh, I personally, it, it, it makes me better at what I do. So for me, it's really useful. But I've had athletes be like, you know what? This isn't going to be useful for me during the season. I'm just going to take it off my phone. Yeah. You know, so you create a system or a process and it's intentional. That's another word that I was going to go to. Your dad was intentional with the way he lived mm -hmm. his life or the way he lives his life, right? Like, uh, you know, I, I've got church, I've got family, I've got my farm, uh, I've got my school. Like, yeah. there's intention and there's purpose. And I think most successful people are intentional with the systems that they put into place. All right, so you go through the Final Four experience. Senior year, it's a different team, right? Yeah. Senior year, uh, Jeff Green left early for the draft, so that left a huge hole in our team. Um, but we still have Roy. Of the you know the two marquee guys, and so you we, we start off rough, and you learn. All right, a lot of, and for a lot of college players to understand this, people have to recruit. The team has to go on beyond your four year tenure or whatever it is. Your senior year, it's about you, but it's really not. And so I had to deal with that at first. We brought in some new some new players where they had to get involved into the system and had to play, which cut minutes for me. And I struggled with that at the beginning of the year. But, again, that was a point of me maturing as a player uh, within college sports. You have to understand it is a business. At the end of the day, it's a business. Mm. You know, and Coach had to prepare himself for the next two, three, four, five years. Um, he's got to get some of those underclassmen playing exactly. time so that he's not left holding a bag with, with uh, guys who haven't played at all. And part of my job at that level of my career was, okay, help bring him along, but at the same time, your production cannot fall off. Did you have that in you? I did. So that, I definitely that, learned that. That was that you were good with that. You were mm -hmm. good with 
mentoring or leader, being a leader. And uh, you said my freshman sophomore years, my teammates would say, "Did you talk?" Right. Uh, you didn't say junior and senior years. So you started talking junior. And I, senior st- year. I started talking in in my terms of talking. Coaches still may say that I wasn't vocal enough, but I was always one of those guys where, okay, let me lead by example. Let me be the first guy in the line for the drill that everyone hates. So I can, okay, everyone pick it up, pick it up. This is our starting point guard, and he's diving on the floor first in practice. Maybe that'll follow suit. Everyone else will follow suit with that. And so that's kind of what I tried to do. I don't but know as a point guard, they would tell you, it's not good enough, right? right? I'm sure there's, I can hear it. Nope, you're the point guard. Sorry, bud. Like, you, you don't have the luxury. Roy can probably be quiet if Roy right. wants to be quiet. You, nope, we need mm-hmm. you dictating. If anything went wrong on the court, I think the students even heard when the coach saying that they made signs that said, fix it, John, as he used to always yell that out there on the floor. If something was going wrong, it may not have even been my fault. It is your fault. You're the leader on the court. You're the extension of the head coach on the floor. You have to fix the situation that's at hand. Did you like fixing problems? I, I learned to like it. Huh. To stay on the court, I learned to like it. So you had to take that on. Yeah, and and I think and I what I tell a lot of guys now, you have to know your teammates' personalities. There's some guys that you can yell at. There's some guys that you can't yell at in a heat situation because they'll, they'll shut down. There's some guys you got to grab by the jersey. There's other guys you have to talk to in a more constructive way. You have to know who you're playing with in order for everyone to buy in and to gel. Because at the heat of the moment, people are going to, are going to react off their instincts. So you don't have time to sit here and explain things. You have to know who you're with. So first of all, that goes back to your ability to sit in a room and observe, observe the room. Yeah. Uh, so when you're observing, now I know what these guys need, and now I can come at them. And the second thing is, so reacting versus responding. Mm-hmm. And reacting is usually just pure instinct, emotional uh, reaction. And I think when we just rely on reaction, uh, we aren't necessarily responding. So I think a great team, a great player can say, no, I'm going to respond. I'm not going to react. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we just play based off reaction, that's where emotions like anger and sadness and frustration come into play. And it's pretty hard to be successful uh, if we go about it that way. So I think responding, uh, great teams can respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mediocre teams react. Yeah. Uh, and maybe their talent's good enough that they can still win, mm-hmm. but a great team will learn how to respond instead of react. All right, so you graduate. Yeah. Now what? What are you thinking as you're as you're graduating? What's your, what's your mindset? So, see, I think it was the final four year. I went to Steve Nash Academy in was it Jersey? In Jersey, supposedly it's top ten point guards. At that point, it's like okay, these these guys actually think I can play pro basketball because I, I, I was coach Kevin Eastman. He sits in the initial uh, day everyone gets in. We're the mentors for the college kids. Now, mine, or the high school kids, mind you, in that group of high school kids was Isaiah Thomas. That's so funny. He was our, we were their mentors at that point. And so he says, you know, take a look at all these guys on this panel. These are your future NBA point guards. And I look down the line at him. like, oh, I'm included in this. Right. I'll put him in the post. Right. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, okay, I can play pro basketball. So I went back to my senior year with that mentality. Um, so any idea who else was amongst those high school kids? Uh, I can't remember that year. I know Isaiah. I can't remember who else right now offhand. That's a guy. But um, yeah. Oh, and I, actually, that same year I got into law school at Georgetown. That same summer, and so a lot had happened. A lot had happened that year. So I come back in the senior year. I'm thinking, okay, I, I want to go play pro basketball, but at the same time, I have the law school situation. How do I handle this? Well, I graduate. Team started calling for workouts, and so obviously you want to go with your initial dream first. I took that route, um, didn't make an NBA team, went undrafted, 
played summer league with the Wizards, and then European teams start just coming in with offers. And at that age, you know, you're a college kid. You don't have money in college. I'm seeing figures I've never, ever seen in my life. And, you know, I, I was terrified. and I didn't want to go to Europe because – I was a homebody. You know, you, you grew up in Alabama. You're not exposed to Paris and Croatia and all these places. It's, you sometimes fear what you don't know, and I did not know that whole other world. But, um, no, I I said take a risk, which is not something I do. So I where do you end up? Where's the where's – the, uh... first, first year was Slovenia, which is – Before you go on, you just said I do not take risks. Yeah. You're not a risk taker. At that point, I wasn't. Okay. Um You'll have to just you'll have to pause and say, all right, this is when I became a risk taker. Okay. Uh, when you when you get well, to that point, going to Europe that was that was the risk. biggest risk. That was the risk. So you're like, all right, let's do it. Yeah. And but you're not you're not all you're not all in. No, <laughs> to be honest with you, I wasn't. When that plane broke through the clouds and you, I could see Slovenia and like how the houses look different and all that stuff. I I tell my mom this all the time. Turn it around. I was ready to turn the plane around. I was like, just. Hey, if we had enough gas, just get me back across the water, drop us off. But, you know, that was a hard year, man. Yeah. I ended up playing four months with that team. We were in EuroLeague, highest level you can get in Europe. Um, that's the year Brandon Jennings. He was in my, my pool. We were playing against each other. And the teams decided, you know what, we're not going to pay you. And that's when it's like everything I thought I mastered at the collegiate level, I had to redo it all over again. Um you know, you, you weren't getting paid, you're traveling every night, you're playing, they're practicing two times a day, the food's not good, it actually was terrible, living arrangements weren't great, you know, I'm, I don't know the language, I look completely different than anyone else in the entire city, and you had all that stacked against you, and I remember um, they they cut me, I'd never been cut for anything in my life, they cut me, I came back home, I told my 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 mom, my agent, was like, I'm done playing basketball. I quit. I'm not playing basketball anymore. Signed with a different agent and from my hometown. And he uh, he told me, just just give it one more try. Give it one more try. So I ended up going back in February that first season to play with a team in Germany. I ended up winning the championship. And so, you know, you start feeling good about yourself. Was that experience better as far as culture yeah. and, and the organization and all that? Yeah, it was, it was way better. And I was in North Germany, um, a place called Oldenburg. So if, if you've been to Germany before, it's completely different than Bavaria, Southern Germany. So it's not as Americanized, but you have aspects of it. Uh, it's more like a village-type lifestyle. Um, but the team was good. I had uh, great pros on my team. I remember Jason Gardner, he used to play at Arizona. I actually came to that team to back him up because he was having back trouble that year. Mm-hmm. And playing against him, uh, playing with him, uh, Ricky Paulding from Missouri as well. Those guys really taught me a lot and taught me how to be a pro within Europe. Um, so, won a championship, you're feeling good, you think, all right, I got my career back on track, let me try this NBA thing again. I come back, um, Houston Rockets like, yo, we like you, we like you, we like you, but we're going to sing to the D League. And again, it starts all over again. It's like these, it's like revolving doors, so to speak. And so, I had to deal with the life of the D League. And as you know, that, that's a grind. That is an absolute grind. Um, you're not really making money, but you're seeing guys who are getting call ups and so forth, living out the dream that you thought you should you, know, you should possess, you should have. It was rough, um, but grinded out. Ended up winning championship that year. So two back to back championships. Third year I went I went to Munich. Do you pride yourself on winning? Yes. Like that's like 
you know, at Georgetown, you guys won. I mean, you don't win the whole thing, but Final Four, that's winning. Um, and that's that's big for me, man. There's so many people around the city now say, man, you should have shot more in college. You should do this in college. And I say, that, that, yeah, that sounds good when you're saying it now. But like, I, I honestly, I just I wanted to win. And that's all that ever really went through my mind. We weren't in games where it's like, okay, I, we played four possessions. I haven't taken a three yet. Like, if I don't need to take a three, I don't need to take a three for us to win. If I need to get the ball to Jeff in this possession, get it to him, Pat, whoever. And did you take that same approach when you played overseas? Yeah, I did. And you can't. I quickly learned that. Because <laughs> I've worked with guys overseas, and it is. It's, it's uh, look, the NBA has a little bit of this as well, but – uh, overseas, it, it's they're one-year contracts usually, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes two, and guys are jumping. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the NBA, you do have some organizations where it's a team and everybody rises with that team. And yeah. I think financially, they're more secure, so it's right. not, you know, uh, it's still competing for a job and it's still food on the table, but it's different from overseas where. You know, you're, you're really trying to get to one of those elite organizations mm-hmm. where you know you're going to get your paycheck. They're going to pay for your apartment. You're going to get a car or whatever it's going to be. Yep. And uh, you could have, there are, the, now there are teams in Europe that do play the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll see teams that, that sacrifice it and they pay their guys and sort right. of go through that. But you're just saying in Europe, you, you can't. You have to you have to prove your, your, right. your worth. And, and the game is played at such a fundamental level over there that they're not really about the flash and the glitz and the glamour. It's... All right, look, you're going to defend full court after we've practiced twice a day all week, and you're going to do this on Saturday. You you have no legs. You're tired. You know, you're not comfortable. It's not something you want to do, but if you don't do that, they will cut you and send you home. It's it's such a cutthroat league over there. But my third year getting back to Germany, and like you said, playing for a big club, play for uh, Bayern Munich. And for people who know that's like one of the best soccer clubs in the world. So they, <laughs> it was so funny. The president comes in on the first day and was like, look, if you guys don't win a championship this year, I'm terminating the basketball program. <laughs> I'm like, that is an incredible uh, pregame speech for the first game of the season. We all looked at each other like, why did he say that? So the pressure's on, you know, from that point on. But we ended up winning the championship that year, ironically enough. So um, there's just a lot of different elements you got to deal with over there. It's, it's, it's tough. The expectations are all-time high. And they don't. Here it's more, you go to a pro game, you get to see a couple celebrities, you get to see, you know, some, some women, you get to see who's who in the crowd of the city, whatever. Over there, you're playing for, it's like another level of pride. People are there playing for political interests. I played in gyms where they threw stuff at us. I played in gyms where they spit at you. And you'll have, I played in a gym in Turkey, we played a, a night game, and it was a riot in the middle of the game. That We literally dropped the ball and they made us go to the locker room because, one side of the arena started fighting the other side. The police came out with the uh, the riot gear, the bats and the shields, and it was all over political stuff that they didn't get along with. Somebody got elected in, from my knowledge of the aftermath, someone got elected in, the other side wasn't too happy about it, and said, well, we're just going to all come to this game and make a statement here and fight at the expense, the health, and the risk of everyone else in that gym. It's wild. And so... Walk me through the, the countries that you played in. So... I played, played in, uh, lived in Germany, Belgium, uh, Angola, Africa, and through playing those different teams, I played in what St. Petersburg, Russia, uh, Croatia, all throughout Croatia, Spain, uh, Italy, France. Uh, any any regret in going that route? 
sitting here now yeah. was the best decision I ever made in my life. Why? I wasn't sure how you were going to answer that. It, it got me so far out of my comfort zone that I was able to find out who I am, what I really like and want out of life. And knowing that now, it helps me have a more direct approach moving forward. You know, I, I talk to people just in passing, coming back now, like, oh, I don't really know what I want to do in my life, but I want to travel. Oh, I asked him, well, where do you want to go? I don't know. I just, I just want to travel, just get lost and kind of, you know, figure things out. And I hear that so often. And then, and when I was playing the, for the first two or three years, you're playing angry because you're mad you didn't get to the NBA. And because no one will say, hey, yeah, i happy that I got sent to wherever in Germany or wherever in Belgium when your best friend is playing for, you know, the Boston Celtics. And you see that every day. And it was a point where I, I really said to myself, you know, I am blessed to be in this position. Yeah, the NBA is the way I wanted to go, but maybe I'll find my purpose here. And after just kind of letting my, my guard down a little bit and really getting out and, and get intertwined with the culture, talking to people, I really started to learn, love those countries, and make relationships I still have to this day. And, you know, it's just a quality of life you want, man. Sports is a platform. Use a platform to teach, to reach out, and help individuals. But at the same time, being over there, I, I never want to ever get caught up in a rat race. Yeah, you want to make money, you want to do things, but, you know, I, I want to be able to be to provide for my family. When I decide to have a family, be there to help raise my kids, that type of stuff. You know, you can get lost in this business real quick. So you finish playing ball. Yeah. You come back to the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just take me take me from there. So I uh, had talks with Coach Thompson while I was in Angola. Uh, he mentioned the fact that he wanted me to come back and, and be a coach here. Had you thought about coaching throughout your career? <laughs> he's he's shaking his head no and smiling. I, I, I never. You don't want to be like dad and right, coach? Exactly. So I kept saying, I don't want to be a coach. I don't want to be a coach. My father was a coach for 20 some years. You know, I, I've been around the game. I know the stresses of the game. I'm cool. I want to do something completely different. And then the opportunity presented itself and. You know, I said, well, again, let me take another risk. Let me let me try. And I ended up liking it, you know, coming back. And I felt, and not only just liking it, I, I sort of felt like I had an obligation to because of, A, coming from where I came from, ending up at the university that I did, but then going a step further and being basically doing all that over again, but now with having a little money in your pocket. It changes things when you're playing, mm-hmm. you know. And so I felt like to give that back to a lot of kids now in a, in a culture where, so many players are being exploited at a young age. Being able to get that knowledge back was something that I felt I was obligated to do. And so, you know, I enjoyed every moment of it. Yeah, I didn't sleep much this year. Yeah, it was stressful, but, you know, I, I wouldn't trade it. Obligation's a powerful thing, man. Yep. And I think people think of obligation as always being bad. I don't think it is. I think a lot of times when we're obligated, um, we are, once again, doing something for others that, mm-hmm. you know, we have a responsibility to do. Um, so I think obligation is a strong word. Um, all right, here's what I'd like to do with you to finish up because I know we've been talking for a while, uh, but it's been fun and, and you got a great story. Uh, I want to do what I call preferences. Okay. So uh, you're going to pick one of these and you can only pick one. So you're going to have two options and you have to pick which one of these you prefer. And let's just use the player version of yourself. Okay. Uh, so did you prefer preparing or performing? P- performing. You hesitated a little bit when you said that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why I hesitated, but I definitely enjoy performing. All right. 
Were you a yes sir coach or a why? No, yes sir. You're always Absolutely. yes sir. Yeah. Uh, did you prefer a system or autonomy? System. Did you prefer to cheat and win or lose while being honest? <laughs> cheat and win. So here's the most interesting <laughs> thing. When I ask that question to non-athletes, uh-huh. they almost, almost always look at me like I'm crazy. Like, dude, I, I'd rather lose while being honest. But when I ask it to athletes, yeah. a lot of them say cheat and win. And they don't. And a lot of them are like, no, we would do whatever it takes to win. All is fair in love and war. I uh, prefer perfection <laughs> or progression? Progression. Which is interesting because you use the word perfect mm-hmm. a lot during our conversation. And that was something else I was keen on is like you said, I want to make things perfect. But why did you answer that pro- as progression? Because I've learned that you can't. And I always, I, I've really learned to trust the process. And that's something that stuck with me. Would freshman you answer that the same way? No. It would have been perfect. No, it would have been perfect. Okay. Most valuable player or most improved player? Most valuable. Resume or eulogy? Resume. This generation or your parents' generation? Uh, Parents' generation. (laughs) You prefer evaluations or descriptions? Description. Positive feedback or negative feedback? Positive. Culture or talent? Culture. Momentum or the moment? The moment. Pumped up or calmed down? Calm. Grit or grind? Grind. Light or respected? Respected. Do you prefer transformational leadership or transactional leadership? Transformational. Love winning or hate losing? Love winning. Risk taker or rule follower? <laughs> Risk taker now. But it definitely would have been a rule yeah. follower before. Yeah. Such a cool uh, experience for you to have. Uh, mm-hmm. I went abroad to Madrid uh, when I was in college for four months. How'd and, you like it? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And I, I really think it was one of the most transformational experiences I've had. Because uh, you're right. I think you learn how to be independent. You learn yes. that you have to learn a language. You have to figure out a way to communicate with people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and oftentimes, growth occurs when we are out of our comfort zone yeah. uh, and when we feel a little pain. Um, so there, there's there's just such an experience of growth. So I think you got to experience that. And like you use the word blessed, but so fortunate to be able to do that. Uh, starter on a losing team or towel waiver on a winning team. Tell we want to win a team. Balance or specific obsession? Balance. Fear of failure or fearlessness? Fear of failure. Once again, another one that athletes, like, yeah. you know, if we go to any commencement speech, you know, anywhere in the country the next couple of months, they're going to talk about don't fear failure, don't be afraid to fail. But a lot of athletes are driven by fear of failure. Yes. A lot. Uh, do you disassociate from pressure or embrace it? Uh, embrace it. Head or gut? Head. Awesome. Well, uh, Coach John, uh, you know, I I think we'll see where your journey takes you from here. Um, But I, you know, had lunch with you a couple months ago and I got to know your story a little bit. And I got to know more today because we're not chomping down on a nice Jetty sandwich or salad uh, for those D.C. people that know about Jetty's. And, you know, it's just been fun getting to know you. And uh, I love your story. I love your honesty. And. 
your quiet confidence is something that you can feel as, as soon as I can feel as soon as I met you. So uh, thanks for coming on the Beyond the Surface podcast. Thanks for having me. We'll talk again real soon. Man. Yes, sir. Thank you.